Welcome to Hiawatha again. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're just visiting today, welcome to you especially. As um, Spence said earlier, glad you guys are joining us. Welcome back to all of you from your Thanksgiving travels or festivities, wherever um, your, your travels or parties took you. Uh, glad to have you back. And um, We are right now in a series in, in the book of Acts, as Peter was talking about. Lots to talk about today, so we're going to dive right in. Uh, if you have not uh, been here so far in this series, we're only about four sermons in here, so this will take us about 13 months total to get through, so it's a longer series. In fact, I think it's going to be our second longest ever in our 12-year history as a church, just under, um, or second to Matthew, not just under, but second to Matthew. So uh, it's, it's going to be a long one, but a good one. Uh, Acts, uh, so a few things on Acts if you're brand new to the book or maybe you're brand new to Christianity and you're here today. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. It is a part two to the Gospel of Luke, which is the uh, third book of the New Testament. So Luke wrote two books to this uh, one guy, Theophilus, uh, who was uh, kind of a peer of his in a way, and, and he wrote these, he researched these things out and interviewed people, and he was eyewitnesses to much of this stuff as well, and he wrote them down. And the Spirit of God inspired these things to be written a certain way for us to understand who Jesus is, the gospel, who we are, kind of in light of this whole story, and, and what it means to truly be a follower of, of Christ and, and to be saved. And today we'll talk about this, but to be full of the Holy Spirit as well. So, uh, but Acts is part two to that gospel. So it basically, and, and uses this language in the first chapter, but He's going to tell the continued story of all that Jesus came to do and teach, culminating with his death and resurrection, like back in the Gospel of Luke, and now in Acts, his ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about today, the birth of his church, which we'll talk about precisely and kind of more pointedly next week, and then the rest of Acts will be the spread of the Gospel all the way to Rome and beyond. And so really that's the whole of the book right there in kind of a few clauses and uh, summative statements. And so uh, that's basically where we're at. We're calling this series, The Church is Born, uh, or The Birth of the Church. Uh, Acts refers to the acts of Jesus and the Spirit, essentially, though, traditionally, and you might see in your Bibles, something that says, like, the acts of the apostles, so the acts of, of Christ's uh, disciples or friends or these first kind of Christian pastors. That's true, but it's more true to say that it was the acts of the Holy Spirit of God or Jesus' Spirit who was at work through uh, these, these men, these, these initial, and also beyond that, these initial 120 believers who were gathered together and um, who were waiting for the reception of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. So, so today we're going to talk about Pentecost. It's a, it is, it's a benchmark passage in Acts and really the whole New Testament and for the Christian life. It's a very important one, kind of unprecedented in a way in terms of how it talks about the Holy Spirit coming. It's, it's descriptive more than prescriptive. It's not paradigmatic for how... Christians will always receive the Holy Spirit, and there's many, many and various reasons for that, but it's still theologically important for us in terms of how it happens and the order by which things take place. So, um, so this is the day the Christians first received the Holy Spirit. And so remember, as Peter was saying, that they had been commanded to wait for, for days for God to send his promise, and today he's going to do that. And so today, this is a great passage for wherever you're at uh, in terms of like Christianity and where you're at spiritually. It is a passage for those of you who want to understand more about how the church started. It's for those who are waiting for God on any level, who are longing to see Jesus' face. It's for those who are enemies of God in need of reconciliation. I'll talk about that a little bit later on. It's for the confused. It's for the misunderstood. And it's for the dead who need the breath of life and the breath of the Spirit to live. And so really it's for all of us. Wherever you're coming from, and there's many other angles we could take on this, but from wherever you're coming from, this is, this is a wonderful passage to see, sort of see and savor God and his, his gospel through. So let me read from Acts 2, 1 to 13. You can follow along on screen or 
uh, Bible that you brought with you, uh, feel free to open to Acts 2, 1 to 13 today. It's our main text or a phone app you have. And uh, then we'll come back here and, and dive in. So Acts 2, 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And as the sound, at the sound, the multitude came together as they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are all filled with new wine. All right, so just a note for clarity on this last part especially. These are all Jews gathered in Jerusalem from around the region for Pentecost. We'll talk about Pentecost here in a second. That's a new word or idea for you. But they're all Jews gathered in Jerusalem for this festival. At this point in history, they had been scattered around the Roman Empire, especially up into Asia Minor and over towards Greece. And so uh, when it lists all these nations here, it means Jews of these nations and proselytes to Judaism who speak different languages now because they were formerly dispersed. So they're all Jews who speak different languages because they've been dispersed around the, uh, the Roman Empire, essentially, or the ancient world at, at this time. So just a point of clarity there. Also, it's unclear whether the 120 believers at this time that Peter talked about last week uh, or just the 12 apostles received the Spirit here. It's, it's unclear. There are good arguments for both. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day, but it's just unclear. So if you're wondering that, you're asking a good question, and there's no clear answer. <laughs> so at some point, at least the 120 did receive the, the Spirit because all Christians receive the Holy Spirit, uh, not necessarily visibly in this precise manner, like with tongues of fire, but if you're a Christian here today, you have the Holy Spirit in the same capacity. It's part of the promise that God makes to sinners when he says, I'm going to save you from your sins and also send my very presence to live, not just around you and kind of among you, but also to live actually within you, to fill you, as it says here, uh, implied empty vessels, to fill us with the power of God and the very presence of God. And so, uh, but with that said, it's unclear whether the 120 are all receiving this and speaking in tongues or just the 12 apostles. I think it's probably just the 12, the way this is worded, but again, it doesn't really matter. All right, so two things here before we get going. I'm going to preach this passage today. There's a lot of bunny trails we could take, like talking about pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, and what does the whole Bible have to say about the Holy Spirit, or what does spirit-filled living mean, or we could have a whole sermon on the gift of speaking in tongues. What is that? What does the Bible say about that elsewhere, and how is that different? what's going on here? And that's a great question as well. Uh, and we're just not going to do that today because Luke doesn't really do that here. That's not really his main point. His point is just to describe the Spirit coming in this capacity for theological reasons. And so really what I want to do today is talk about three big gospel themes or things that relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ here 
in terms of how the Spirit is arriving geographically, kind of where this is happening, when this is happening at Pentecost. And then lastly, we'll talk, about, we'll talk some about tongues, actually, and the significance of the disciples being able to speak in languages they didn't formerly know. And that's basically what's happening here. Known languages that people are saying, uh, I hear this person speaking in, in this language. That's my native tongue. And you hear the same person speaking in your language, even though it's the same person talking. So it's this kind of miraculous ability to speak, but also to hear uh, things in, in the mighty works of God, really, in this miraculous capacity. So we'll talk third about that today. So, so with that said, let's dive right in. Uh, first is the sort of the when to this passage. This is really important because the passage starts this way. Luke's careful to say it was on the day of Pentecost that, that this happened. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in the upper, upper room, and suddenly there came from heaven this mighty sound like a rushing wind, which was the Holy Spirit, divided tongues of fire came and appeared above the heads of these, of these people, and they all were filled with the Holy Spirit. So, but before we get into that, let's talk about Pentecost. So, so Pentecost was an annual Jewish harvest festival commemorating the beginning of the fall harvest, sort of like we might have, you know, things like uh, fall harvest festivals, or various, like Oktoberfest or something, you know, like we might have here in our culture. But that's kind of like what it was. It, it celebrated the beginning of, of the fall harvest. And so it was 50 days after Passover, hence the penta here. So it's from the Greek word for, for five, essentially. So it's 50 days after Passover. And it's something that, that God, and, and the Jews called it the Feast of Weeks. So the Pentecost is kind of the Greek word for it. The, the Jews called it the Feast of Weeks. And there's more on this in Leviticus 23. If you're interested in reading it, about it from a biblical standpoint, that's when God first commanded it to be kept back in Leviticus 23. So there it's called the Feast of Weeks, but we'll call it Pentecost um, uh, today. So it was a festival that, that God commanded Israel to keep for uh, really a long time, like an epoch of time, but is now coming to uh, an end. So in, in a way, I think when we look at Pentecost here, we're, we're seeing this is, this is Pentecost, but it's kind of the last Pentecost festival in a way. Yet maybe the truest version at the same time. And what I mean by that is what's happening here at this Pentecost is what past Pentecosts in the Old Testament were looking ahead to for centuries and centuries. Or to put it another way, celebrating physical harvest every year for so long anticipated and is finally giving way to celebrating spiritual harvest, but this time a harvest of souls. That's exactly what we're going to be seeing take place next week immediately on Pentecost but then kind of throughout the book of Acts as well. And Jesus, if you guys are familiar with this, like back in Luke, but also all four gospel accounts, Jesus talks about himself in these terms a lot already, saying things like he'll make his disciples fishers of men, so gatherers of souls, gatherers of people. And he's spoken parables about the end of history being like a great harvest and a separating of wheat from weeds or tares or chaff. And even about himself being like a, a first fruits of the harvest himself, as if his resurrection was the first crop guaranteeing an, an ingathering of more crops, so to speak, or souls or resurrections. And again, this is exactly what we're going to be seeing play out in Acts. So this is not just grasping at straws. Pentecost here is being spiritually fulfilled. This is what physical Pentecost, or Feast of Weeks, annually looked ahead to and anticipated every, every single time it was, it was celebrated and, and gathered for. The harvest is beginning. And so, like it says here, like Pentecost, not just celebrated the, 
the ingathering or, or, or the crops of harvest, but celebrated the beginning of the crop harvest. So is it here representing the beginning of the soul harvest, not, not the ultimate harvest that you might say comes at the end of history, but this is kind of the beginning. And so Pentecost has been going on spiritually ever since this happened. It's like Pentecost is kind of beginning here in a final spiritual sense, but it's been going on. Souls are being harvested and brought in and gathered for God ever since through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit in saving sinners from their sins and from exile from God. Also, uh, this is from back in Leviticus 23 as well, but on this day, the, the Jews sacrificed seven spotless male lambs. And so what this signifies is, you know, like they would have done that, so now it is all of this stuff in Acts that's going on here, it is predicated on the sacrifice of the perfect, defectless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus' death for sinners precedes and enables people to be gathered in by God. And so the fact that sacrifice happens on, on this is not a coincidence. It's kind of happening here too. Even though it was 50 days prior that Jesus died, this was a reminder that for the Jews that sacrifice was associated with harvest. Sacrifice was associated in this case with soul harvest. It's impossible to be gathered to God without the blood of Jesus being shed, in other words. There's no harvest apart from sin being eradicated. There's no harvest. There's no ingathering. There's no salvation. There's no kind of ultimate day of the Lord in a good way that benefits us without the blood of Jesus being spilt. The ultimate Lamb of God that Pentecost was always kind of yearning for but never quite seen fulfilled at the same time. And so again, kind of historically here, it's interesting, the early Christians who were all Jewish, as is the case right here, but also generations later, and even to this day, early, the early Jewish Christians, though, didn't feel compelled to keep a Pentecost festival anymore, physically. But we see that they quickly saw how Jesus fulfilled it and all of their festivals. So Passover before this, Jesus completed that one as well. They weren't keeping Passover anymore. They were just believing in Jesus. And they were placed their festivals with things like communion and with gathering on Sundays. So not on Saturdays anymore, or Sabbaths, but they started immediately to gather on Sundays because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So all of their festivals were immediately stopped and they started just to believe in Jesus. He was the reason for the festivals. And so if he's here, why keep them anymore? They were all shadows of him. So now that, now that the substance is here, no more Sabbaths, no more Passovers, no more Feast of Weeks, no more Pentecost, no more Feast of Trumpets or Festivals of Trumpets, none of that is kept anymore. It's fascinating. Not just Gentiles, non-Jews are doing this. These are Christian Jews who are, uh, Jewish Christians who are um, also seeing, seeing this progression as well. And so in the, in the spirit of this, we, we see it's interesting because at the, at the very end, I'll talk a little bit more about this next week because Peter addresses it when he starts to preach the gospel for the very first time in kind of uh, by way of sermon. But in verse 13, it says, so some are saying, this is amazing, what's going on? Others are mocking, saying, oh, they're just drunk. They're, they're just filled with new wine. And so in the spirit of all we just said here, it's interesting because there's some verbal irony going on here uh, in that they actually are filled with new wine. It, they're mocking. They don't really know what they're saying. You know, so there's, there's irony here because they actually are filled with wine if by that you mean that Jesus is the new wine. And back in Luke, so again, volume one to Acts here, so same author, back in Luke 
uh, 5, 38, Luke is careful to point this out. He says, Jesus at one point says that new wine is being poured out or new wine is being given. New wine is being poured into new wineskins. And by that, there's a greater context to this, but he's just saying that he himself now is the new thing that's coming into history. The old is fading, including old Jewish festivals because they are now giving way to Jesus and his grace or his gospel. And actually elsewhere too in John 2, it says that he is the better wine. You know, being saved by God is better than a fall harvest uh, crop, right? It, it's, they don't even compare. And so Jesus is the better wine. It's when he, when he, John 2, when he turns water into wine, people are like, usually at these parties, people save the bad wine for later when everyone's drunk because they can't taste it. But they're saying, but Jesus, you brought the good wine. You brought the good wine now later into the party. I think what he's saying is he himself is the good wine. He's the better wine in comparison to the old ways or the old laws or old festivals or the way things used to be. He's the better thing. He is better than the festivals. Soul harvest is better than crop harvest is the idea here. And so Pentecost, it's almost like it's finally, truly for the first time and the final time at the same time here. All right, so the when is really, really important, and we'll see this play out in Acts. Soul harvest is happening, all right? Location, secondly, 2-1. This is the second part of the same verse. They were all gathered together in one place. All right, so Peter talked about this last week. In, uh, in last week's sermon, it came up because the, the actual the, the word is used in chapter 1, but the room that they were in was called the upper room. And it was in the city of Jerusalem somewhere. We don't, we don't know where exactly. But it was in this room, this is, the, this is the important part for today, it was in this room and this geographical location that the Spirit descended on the disciples. All right, so this might see, seem unimportant at first glance, but it's extremely significant, especially as it relates to how Luke ends his first volumes. So let me read the last verses of the Gospel of Luke for you and we'll compare them to what's going on here in Acts 2. So Luke 24 says this. When Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And so the key thing here is to see that right after Jesus ascends, this is how Luke first records it. He records it again in Acts, kind of in a complementary different way. But the first time he, he records it, he says, the disciples were happy, they were praising God, they went back into the temple, and they were praising God there. But this is the key. The Spirit did not come upon them there in the temple. Luke is careful to, to, to include this. He did that. The Spirit dis, does not ascend on the people when they're in the temple. Only later, when they're outside of the temple, in the, the upper room. And that may still seem inconsequential, but not when you think like an Old Testament Jew. And not when you understand how the Bible deals with these things, locations and geographical points of, of interest, symbolically. The temple, biblically, represents the Old Testament. This is true all over the place, especially as you look at how the New Testament talks about the Old Testament. The temple isn't just a structure. It's a symbolic sort of symbol that, that all of the Old Testament, everything is kind of wrapped up with because that was the center of of worship, the center of where, where, where laws were kind of kept and sacrifice was given and people were drawn near to God. 
but the temple represents the Old Testament and all of the laws, here in parentheses, all of the laws associated with it. And so this is why Jesus actually speaks harshly against the temple in the New Testament and refers to himself as the new temple as well, that will replace the old ones. This is why Jesus says the old ones fading, and just like, it's kind of like he's saying I'm the new Pentecost in a way, and then there is a new Pentecost coming like we just talked about. There's also a new temple coming, and Jesus is that ultimate temple, and then his church will be too when they receive the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that here in a second. So it's why he speaks harshly against the temple, talks about himself as the new one. He even curses the temple at one point and talks about how it's going to be destroyed. And all this also relates to how he would later, in Hebrews 13, 12, die outside the camp. Jesus does not, as a sacrifice, die inside the temple, but outside the walls of the city, outside the camp. Hebrews 13, 12, away from the center of Old Testament law-centered life to show us that his, like this is today with where the Spirit's being given, to show us that his death was apart from temple-related things. Like Romans 3.21 says, salvation is apart from law, apart from the temple, outside the walls of the city. That's where we find it. Because we find it apart from doing, apart from being good, apart from trying to measure up, apart from keeping the commandments. It's not where we find salvation. We find it in Christ, outside the city, wrapped up completely in his blood, completely in his body, completely in the gift that that is. They're not syncretized. This is the beauty of it. Salvation is outside of these things. It's apart from something that men have constructed with their own hands, like the temple, and instead given by grace when we are waiting for it, not working for it. We also see this play out in, um, in how the Spirit is, is given and descending like fire upon the heads of the first Christians rather than how it used to descend. Remember how it used to descend in the Old how did the fire come down in the Old Testament? It descended on the building, right? The building of the temple. It, the glory of God came down and descended on the structure. But now it's coming on the heads of people, like sinners, like us who are being saved. It's a marked difference here. So like in Exodus 40, it says the glory of God, which was like fire, descended upon the tabernacle, which is like a tent-like version of the temple before the temple was built. And in Acts 2, divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. This is just saying that the church now, you guys, if you're Christians, you are the new temple. And, and this is why this is so important. As we think about these things, the reality of this, this isn't just for these original people, this is for us. And if that's the case, there's nowhere else for us to go to be saved. There's nowhere else for us to go to be cleansed. Nothing else for us to do through our works. There's nowhere else to go, like to something we've built with our hands to experience. It's not how Christians think anymore, or never have. But rather, it's something that's come to us. Like Jesus came to save us from our sins, so does the Spirit come to us when we're waiting. It's almost like God just really, really wants us to believe this stuff. Duh, right? But he wants us to see it over and over and over again. Salvation comes when we're waiting, not when we're climbing the hill to go to the temple. Something built by the hands of men, like worked for, assembled. Salvation's not worked for. The Spirit's not worked for or constructed with, with the hands of people. This is something Stephen will get into when he gives his speech in Acts 7. He makes a big deal of that. The temple is like works built by the hands of men. 
The gospel is like grace, not built by the hands of people, but just received. So something we'll see later in Acts as well. We'll come back to that. It's a huge, huge theological deal in the Bible. But what I want to see today is just this idea that the locus here of where all this happens is extremely important, especially if we're reading the whole Bible as a story. And we get to this point, and we're seeing the glory of God for the first time, like ever, come upon something other than the temple. This would have been radical and weird and almost offensive and yet glorious and new and fresh and sans works, sans commandment, sans law at the same time, which is what this is getting at and, and symbolizing. The location of where the Spirit comes tells us we're saved by God's grace, not by the constructs of our hands and not associated with how well we keep his laws or not at all by the sacrifices we bring. The Old Testament talks about how God was despising the sacrifices of Israel. He, 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 didn't, he despised them. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But then he says, I'm going to bring my own sacrifice. So we're not saved by the sacrifices we bring into some temple. We're saved by the sacrifice God gives us. See how different that is? How much better that is? Don't think about your life as a Christian as like some kind of sacrifice you can give to God as though you can repay him. And this kind of stuff seeps into churches all the time. You may have heard it before. You may have read it. That's not how the Bible talks or how it shows the gospel, like it is here in verse 1. There's no more sacrifice we can, give to, we can give to God except just thanksgiving because he's done everything for us. All right, so location's huge. And then third here is uh, this third kind of, um, I guess I call them like touch points for the gospel. So the when is very important, the where is very important, and then here's kind of the what. So uh, the tongues. And then so verse 4 again says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, so just a, a couple things to notice here. Um, the first is kind of an aside because, again, we'll see this play out so much in Acts, uh, but I do want to mention it today is this is the first time the Spirit comes upon people. And the one thing that it's really important to see is that the Spirit instantly makes them talk and speak and proclaim and herald things. This is crucial. This might be kind of, maybe kind of a duh statement for a lot of us, but don't let it be that. Uh, don't let it be just kind of like this, this thing because it's super important to see this. It's, it speaks to our kind of ways of doing mission as well and ways of doing church, how important the Bible is and the Word is and what the nature of the gospel is, all of that. It's huge. When the Spirit comes upon people, they talk. And, and, and the essence of their speech is not political, it's not humanitarian, nor is it psychological. What I mean by that is they're not rallying troops here to overthrow Rome. That would be political. Nor are they calling people to love the global poor. That would be humanitarian. Nor are they telling people how to behave. That would be psychological. But instead, they are declaring the mighty works of God. Not the mighty works of man, but the mighty works of God, which would have been the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know this because of how Luke ends. Luke says, this is what I want you to be witnesses about. You've seen me in the flesh, risen from the dead. Tell, tell the world, tell people about this. Announce it from the mountaintops. Because all who trust in me 
the death, death overwhelmer, the death destroyer, will be saved. So go speak it. Go preach it. Go teach it. Go encourage it. Go sing it. Be people of, of the word. And, and this is what Jesus said we'd be witnesses about. So it's not like we, you know, we can look at this and say, well, you know, the Spirit empowers all kinds of things in the Christian life. I mean, in one sense, that, that's true. But here, primarily, it's speaking, speaking the gospel and making much of God. I, I went to the University of Minnesota football game uh, two weeks ago, so the game they lost in between the two amazing wins. Uh, thanks, Peter, for the tickets. Uh, Peter Carlson gave tickets to... Uh, it was great. Uh, very good seats. Uh, Spence was there, Mark, and I was talking to them about this here. It was interesting for me uh, to sit there because I don't go to a lot of football games. This is probably commonplace for, like, Vikings games too and stuff, but, like, uh, during timeouts in between things and so forth, they'd, on the big Jumbotron thing, they'd put up people, and they'd celebrate their, their works, you know, so that there's this one instance where this band member at, at, in the band um, gave bone marrow, I think it was, to someone, and she's up there, and people are going nuts, like, this is amazing. People are going crazy over it, which is great. I mean, it's, it's a good thing. And then the, the team was up on the screen because they had recently served, I think, in a soup kitchen or something. I didn't write these down. This is off of memory. I think it's something like that, right? They, they do volunteer stuff. Uh, PJ Flex big into this, and so... A lot of teams do it. It was great. They, but they were on screen. They have pictures of them working in a soup kitchen. There's big donors on screen next because they've given a lot of money to the University of Minnesota. People are going nuts for that. And then Sid Hartman was on screen too, which I don't know why. Like, just because he was old or something. I don't know. But he, uh, I have no idea why he was up there. He, he, he passed some, like, like, age bracket or something. Or, like, he, he was in some role for a very long period of time. And he was being lauded that and so he was up there and then there were more too but I remember sitting there just thinking not that that's bad stuff you know and like some of that's better than others the bone marrow thing's probably the best thing so um <laughs> that's it's not like Christians should say should not celebrate this we should um some of this stuff but uh, I, was, I was struck having this whole thing on my mind knowing it was coming how different that was than what Pentecost would have been on that first day when when men and women gather together, we celebrate ourselves. That's not what's happening here at Pentecost. It's, it's, marked, it's marked with difference. Pentecost is actually telling us what the essence of Christianity is. It's not political. It's not humanitarian. It's not psychological. It's the mighty works of God. And that's it. That's the only thing celebrated. God did something. And so people aren't sitting there, they're not empowered to preach. And, you know, Peter's saying, now that I'm empowered by the Spirit, our job as Christians is to look for the good in people. Like, that's the essence of Christianity. That's not at all what happens. It never happens when the Spirit empowers people to speak. It's 100% about what God has done, not us. And so it continues throughout the story, right up into this very room, in terms of what I'm doing right now, and what many of us do who are Christians in the room, when we read the Bible and we talk to each other about when we make God big, when we sing up here, are we singing about ourselves? You know, it, it's entirely about, this is what makes Christianity so unique as it's compared to other religions as well. It's entirely about God. It's not about us. I mean, th it informs our life for sure and it has bearing on our life for sure. We're a part of the story for sure. But it's not about us. It's about the mighty works of what Jesus has done. And time and time again, we'll see when Paul, when people go to different cities that have never heard the gospel, this is what they talk about in this alone. 
It's like they're, they're, uh, our community group last week was talking about this, how it's kind of like Christians are these really bad people who just saw something amazing happen. That's like all we are. We're really bad people that saw something amazing happen and we're just kind of like, you guys, you won't believe what just happened, you know, down the road. That's like, that's the, that's the nature of what it means to be a Christian. Or is it for you? I mean, this, this has to be it. If we are to see this, this sort of event as paradigmatic of our life, and we should, what does spiritual living look like? What does God want from the church? Primarily, it's, it's this. All right, so that's the first thing, is that the Spirit empowers speaking the mighty works of God. The, the second thing is, just to talk about tongues here for a minute, um, the miracle of tongues. So in, in a lot of ways, this is the biggest thing going on here, right? At least kind of like on a visual level. You may have read this before, and this is what you remember, is this kind of weird passage about tongues of fire and then languages being spoken miraculously. It's a very, very trippy thing. It would have been awesome to experience you know, the disciples start speaking in languages they didn't know before. They're probably like, what's going on themselves? People are amazed and weirded out. And some blame it on these unschooled, ordinary Galileans being drunk. You know, so there's already this division taking place. Some are just like saying, oh, I can, I can explain that with science. You know, they're just drunk. It's kind of like one side. Already this is kind of happening, right? Not in those words. But I can explain this naturally. They're just drunk. And others are like, whoa, this is actually a work of God. What's going on here? That happens every day today too, right? I can explain the resurrection circumstantially or with science or whatever. I can explain it away. And others are saying, you can't really. This is a mighty work of God. What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? Which path are you on? There's no third path, really. So which path are we on? We're going to see this play out a lot in, in Acts. But in any case, that's what's happening. So kind of the, there's this, there's in a, instance here already where people are kind of taking sides, but they're all at least hearing the gospel, and we'll see this more next week. But, but I think that, you know, even on one level, it's okay just to stop here and not have all the answers, and, and just to think, this is a pretty cool thing, right? I mean, this is, think about, think about being there, what that would have been like. Put yourself kind of sort of in the fly-in-the-wall position, or just in one of these people's shoes, and think, what would that have been like? And to think, man, this is what I was thinking this week, actually, before I even got into this, is that the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is the author of this kind of stuff. Isn't that cool? I mean, God is many things, but he's not boring. You know, this is really weird and trippy and not predictable and would have been a shock, you know? And so God is not boring. And this probably would have been sort of chaotic, I think very ordered because language was a part of it recognizable language, and really God himself speaking. And when God speaks in the Bible, order ensues. Seas calm. Storms stop. Can you think of an instance where God speaks and things get worse, you know, or more chaotic? There are very, very few instances of that, if any, in the Bible. The, the, the greater patterns when God speaks, things get calm and ordered. So it wouldn't have been just chaos. It probably would have been ordered. I understand that person. And they're saying crazy things. I want to hear this. And with order comes intentionality. And so what do we see here is the greater question. What does tongues mean? What's happening with this language barrier um, thing being overcome? First thing is, earlier in the biblical story, there, there was a time when all of humanity was united against God in their pride to show him what they could do with their own hands, alone without him. You guys remember this story back in Genesis 11? 
What do we call that story? The Tower, yeah, the Tower of Babel incident, right? It was there where God confused the languages of people for the first time. Up to that point, there's only one language. But it was there that God came down in mercy and judgment and created languages so people could understand each other. So they couldn't finish building their tower in their pride. And so again, there was mercy in that, but also a judgment because there was then even more division among people and uh, nations were formed. And so it was all a reflection of how much were people all, were already divided from God. And, and so this is the big thing here, and this is, I'm going kind of quick, but the, the huge thing here in terms of like the greater storyline. So how is this one puzzle piece in terms of the greater storyline of Scripture is everything we're seeing in the book of Acts here with language, barriers being overcome, the Spirit being given, all of this is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. It's a reversal of the curse of that moment. It's a reversal of, of, of Babel and division. Language barriers are being overcome. People are being reunited. Confusion and chaos are being mitigated. And, and again, what, what's further upstream from this? Like, as we, think about, as we think about this from kind of a storyline perspective, what's further upstream from this reunification of humanity picture that we get here is reunification with God because this whole thing is flipped in the beginning when our relationship with God is broken then our relationship with people are broken after that so what this is saying is if we're reading about this happening here in Acts 2 the reunification of the nations linguistically must mean that something further upstream even greater has happened and that is reunification with God seen here in the spirit filling these implied empty people okay and so what, what we see then we start to dig deeper upstream is that what's happening here physically again is and you see it both right you're seeing people kind of come together there's no more barriers it's a whisper of connection with god but you're also seeing the holy spirit fill human bodies in other words reunification with god right so it's not like we're we're just seeing this sort of um, suggested storyline-wise, we're actually seeing it happen when the Holy Spirit fills human bodies. That's the greater thing. The greater thing is, is reunification with our Creator, made possible now by the Holy Spirit, who was sent because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so as we dig deeper then here, we also have this idea that Acts 2 is also about humanity being able to understand God's voice again, as if our languages have been synced. Uh, and not just about language, I think, but about understandability. So what I mean here, just a quick survey here, is um, maybe as you guys read the Old Testament, you think, I don't really understand what that meant, and this is really hard, and this book is really difficult. I always skip over it. You know, may maybe we didn't understand things fully in the Old Testament. It was cloudy and jumbled and misunderstood. But the idea here now is that through Christ, we can fully see his face again and understand God's language. So, so in this the cross, Jesus' death, and the empty tomb, his resurrection, was its own type of Babel reversal event because God got clear with us there. Also, you see it in things like Hebrews 12, 24. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, his, his, then it speaks about his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so what this means is that Abel's blood spoke vengeance, if you remember that story back in Genesis 4, but what, what Hebrews here is saying in the New Testament is Jesus' blood is not speaking vengeance, it's speaking peace and grace 
and now there's no more enmity with God anymore. And so his blood is speaking a better word. But again, with this whole thing with Acts 2 in mind, Jesus speaks a better word or a better language or a better tongue here. We can understand. We've also seen how in the Bible we've moved from parables to no parables. Do you guys know that after Jesus dies on the cross, there's no more parables spoken in the Bible? So when, when Paul preaches the gospel, he's not going back to Jesus' parables and saying, this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. We can still go back and look, look to that, of course. We have clarity now because of, of what happened after that. But the parables aren't brought to the nations. Clarity about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is brought to the nations. It's no more, nothing's hidden. There's reasons why Jesus did that that I don't have time to go into that today, but we've moved from parables to clarity. So like the people standing in amazement at Pentecost, here in their own language, the idea is that so do we stand in amazement at how the gospel translates all the foreign languages of the more cryptic parts of the Bible. It's like foreign language, but now on this side of the cross, we can understand it. It's almost like it's translated these cryptic foreign language parts into easily understandable gospelese. So digging even deeper then, and a few things here to, to wrap up with, we ask this question, so I'm going to base all of what I'm saying here off of what we just said. So this is kind of like a, we're seeing a paradigm play forth here. When viewed through this lens, as though language with God is being synced as well, language bearers with God are being overcome here through Jesus and the Spirit as well. In Acts 2, we should see ourselves less in the apostles and more in the gathered nations who draw near and who stand amazed at the mighty works of God. Right? Like, I don't know what you guys brought in here with this passage. This is a common thing is to, when Christians read this, is to sort of skip over the gathered people and to see ourselves in the apostles. And there's certainly a place for that. But we compare and we think, well, that, that's me or should be me. Again, things we can say to that, but we, we skip over, I think, the more important part. We're more like the named gathered what the, what the heck's going on here, nations, than we are uh, the, the apostles. And when you look at some of these named nations, when you do this, it's interesting when you do this because look at some of these nations I highlighted here. Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, so think Persia, basically Egypt, Rome, and then the Cretans. Remember the Cretans in the Bible, how they're talked about? What, what's, what's common with all these highlighted nations and people groups here? in terms of the whole like, biblical story. They're all enemies. Excellent. They're all en either past enemies of Israel or God or present in Rome's case or the Cretans are talked about as these like terrible people and so the, the, in the New Testament. So the, the point, the Persians uh, in Egypt, past enemies, major enemies in the Old Testament, the people of God. The, the point here, guys, is that's us. We're the enemies of God who have now been reconciled. We're the enemies of God who God is not casting out but drawing in. Doesn't this sound like Jesus? When he talks about us in these capacities being evil and, and estranged and cast away but yet loved and fought for and died for? Let this be a mirror. And, and so instead of comparing what you perceive the state of your spirit-filled life to be to the apostles' experience here, pull back away from that for a sec. And instead, see yourself in these enemies of God, but loved by him, died for by Jesus, 
and eventually filled by the Holy Spirit. Men and women who drew near, or rather who were drawn near by God's festival to be saved and brought in. This is your story if you're a Christian. And if you're not yet, be encouraged. In, in a way, you've been drawn here today too in a similar way by God to hear about his mighty work, that he's died for your sins, that he's risen again, that you, like us, one of his enemies, has been reconciled to himself so that now you're a son or a daughter. That's the gospel. And so the call for you, like it is for Christians, is to trust that Jesus has spilt his blood for your sins, then receive the Spirit and join us as we wait for his return. That's the invitation, those of you who are not Christians yet. Believe that Jesus spilled his blood for you and rose again. That's, that's what's being heralded here. That's what the Spirit comes to empower preaching-wise. And then in, in the meantime, guys, for all of you, um, I was thinking of Jesus' words at the end of Luke when he says it's finished, and in Acts 2, suddenly there came from heaven the Spirit, this idea of how everything's done and everything's given. You know, just remember that the Spirit came to the disciples in this manner. Outside the temple, as they were waiting, because, and because we too have the same Spirit within us, when it comes to salvation, there's, there's nowhere else to go. There's no religious pilgrimage. There's no more good deeds to accomplish, no more spiritual mysteries to solve, no parables to decipher, no new language to learn. Just Jesus' bloody body, but now his raised body to behold and thank God for. And so his call from the cross, it's finished, all of a sudden takes on fresh, spun meaning, right? It's finished, no more to accomplish, just like the Spirit comes outside the city to say, no more temple worship, no more sacrifice, no more works of the hands, nothing more to do or accomplish except to receive and thank and respond in, in love. It's a call to believe and to be saved, to look at Christ's bloody body, dying among criminals like us, and raised again for our justification. With that, let me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, the, these gospel touch points in this passage. Uh, Father, as we, as we leave here as, and as a church, actually wherever we're at today, uh, sitting here, hearing this stuff, God, um, Spirit, I pray you'd blow fresh in our midst and, and fill us to these kind of right sort of uh, gospel ends where we would be men and women who are just um, drenched in a good way, just drenched by the blood of Jesus and with our words saturated, dripping with the blood of Christ and really pointing ahead to the empty tomb where um, light and love and God himself burst forth where death kind of lost its, its stranglehold upon humanity. God, that, that, is, that really happened. This really happened. And so, God, uh, free us, God, from the old system uh, that looked ahead to the new wine of the new covenant of the New Testament, the, the new song we sing now, not like the old songs of the Old Testament, the new song we sing that's based simply on Jesus and what he's done for us. God, shape your church. Shape us into, the, into that kind of spirit-given uh, image that you want, the image of Christ you want us to be in, Father. Uh, we pray for that. Uh, save us through the gospel. Save us from our sins. Come and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and make us new. We need you so, so much. We're toast without you. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond together with one last song.